Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. I'm your host, Chris Gondak, and today I'll be speaking with David Hayes Bautista about his new book, El Cinco de Mayo, An American Tradition, which is published by the University of California Press. Professor Hayes Bautista, thanks for being on Subtext. My pleasure. So when I started to write the questions for this interview, I decided to do a quick Google search on the term Cinco de Mayo, and I was amazed to learn about all the different party ideas I could put together and how this holiday is celebrated in both the U.S. and in Mexico. But after reading your book, I'm asking myself, is this a holiday that's celebrated in Mexico? It's not celebrated very much in Mexico, and that's kind of the interesting thing, because Cinco de Mayo is probably the best-known Mexican holiday in the United States. I mean, it's celebrated all the way from Los Angeles to Boston, from Atlanta and Miami all the way to Seattle. It's celebrated in Canada. They have Cinco de Mayo in Vancouver and in Toronto. So one would think it should be celebrated all over Mexico, and in fact, it isn't, outside of Puebla. It is, and it's a local holiday in Puebla. Outside of Puebla, it simply is not celebrated. So for me, the question always was, well, why do we celebrate it so much here when it's not celebrated in Mexico? So let's clear up something for people in the Anglophone world, which is, I admit is something I used to think. Cinco de Mayo is not Mexican Independence Day. Absolutely, Cinco de Mayo is not Mexican Independence Day. And in fact, if you ask a lot of people, why are you celebrating, uh, particularly for Latinos born here, quite often they'll say, well, it must be Mexican Independence Day. <laughs> and of course, immigrants will be very quick to correct them. No, it's not. That is September 15th and 16th. This is not Mexican Independence Day. So then, what is it? Why do we celebrate? And nobody really knows. All right, let's go back to 1848, which is when your book begins. You know, we're recording this in lovely Westwood, California, which was more or less ranchero time, and this is farmland back then. Let's take, in 1848, uh, how would you describe the Latino population in what was early on California as, a Mexican, as part of Mexico and then later on as the United States? Well, actually, to understand 1848, we need to go back to 1810 when Mexico declared its independence. Father Hidalgo rang the bell, yes, on September 16th, Mexican Independence Day, and less than two months later, he issued his first proclamation on December 6, 1810. And in this first proclamation, he said, oh, by the way, once we get a, uh, achieve independence, the first thing we're going to do is abolish slavery and give slave owners 10 days to free their slaves. And another thing we're going to do is get rid of this division of citizenship by racial background. As soon as we get independence, everyone here is going to be citizens of the Republic of Mexico. It doesn't matter what your racial background is. Well, California was part of Mexico, so this was the law of the land here in California. That is, no slavery and everyone was citizens, irrespective of the racial background. These were then the folks that went to bed on the evening of February 1st, 1848, as Mexican citizens. Uh, and they woke up the next morning as U.S. citizens, but they spoke the same language, they had the same food, they had the same families. Uh, the only thing that was different is now they were U.S. citizens, although they had come from a background in which no slavery, no racial distinctions on citizenship, and they woke up into a very different world. And if we think about that, we're talking... Uh, really quite a long time where civilization here in Southern California, it was primarily an agricultural area, so things didn't really change that much. And you think 1848, now you're part of the United States, and the very next year, the gold strike happens in California, up in Northern California. How did that affect the Latino population here in California? I would imagine that it was, it would have been a bit of a jar to all of a sudden not only become part of a new country, but now this humongous economic opportunity happens in the north of the state. 
Well, actually, we need to clarify a little bit that Latinos here were not isolated, lonely outposts. Because of the long coastline, particularly with independence, you'd had trade with uh, Central and South America going on for decades with the Hawaiian Islands. I mean, heck, it were, uh, there were two Latino, three Latino vaqueros that took the whole cattle trade to Hawaii. Uh, that's why the, in Hawaii, the cowboys are called pañolos, the way the Kanakas pronounce espanol. <laughs> they were Californians, they went over in 1830. So actually, California are very, very well knit into the regional and the world economy, trading with the Russians, trading with Hawaii, etc., etc. So they were not isolated. They knew that things were happening. Nonetheless, things were accelerated, as they were everywhere, literally within weeks of the uh, imposition of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Gold is discovered at Coloma. Sam Brandon makes the announcement, and the world rushed in, as a book, I believe, published earlier by UC Press says. However, remember, gold was discovered in 1848. Word of this spread, first of all, down the Pacific coast as the ships took the uh, news of this discovery around the horn. And so during 1848, you had miners from Mexico who now were immigrants, whereas just if this had happened a couple of weeks earlier, they would have been just moving from one part of Mexico. Now they're immigrants. You had miners from Central America and South America. America, all coming up. In fact, they were called 48ers. The, and even better, they brought the technology because uh, they had been digging for gold and silver in Latin America for their years. The College of Mines had been established in Mexico City in the 1780s. They knew how to do it. And they staked everything out, and they were very happily digging up gold out of the ground. And then along comes 1849, and of course, then the 49ers arrived. So you had a little push and shove over who owns the gold fields. But yes, this had tremendous implications. What it did is it created a rather different Latino population. that's suddenly very, very cosmopolitan, particularly in the north end of the state. You had Colombianos, Chilenos, Ecuadorianos, Argentinos, Brasileños, Cubanos, Salvadoreños, Panameños. Whereas here in Southern California, there's still predominantly Californios, although as miners busted out of the gold fields, a lot of them started coming into Los Angeles, and we see a real pickup in the population, even here, far away from the gold fields in Los Angeles. But they were far more cosmopolitan, far larger. The Latino population grew by a factor of 5 to 10 during the decade of the gold rush, and far more plugged into what was going on. So really, the gold rush kind of turned California into a real magnet for, as you said, people from all over Latin America, whereas opposed, before it would have been primarily, you might say, well, but Mexican, because Me it was Mexico for so long. Now, all of a sudden, the gold strike happens, and we can think of California as kind of a melting pot of Latin America, all these guisandos coming in trying to become rich. Oh, absolutely. And uh, what's interesting, as we look at these modern-day uh, issues of what to call this larger thing. Is it Latino? Is it Hispano? Is it Hispanic? Is it Chicano? Whatever. Actually, every single term that we use today was used back in the gold rush. Latino, Hispano, Raza, all of these, every single term, including Cholo and Pocho, except Chicano. That was the only term that was not used during the gold rush as Latinos tried to de describe themselves. Uh, that's the only term that wasn't used back in the gold rush. So we've seen these issues, and of course the kids are growing up bilingual and bicultural, and they're speaking Spanish poorly, and they're throwing in English words, or saying marqueta instead of mercado. Just sounds like today. We'll be back after a short break. The world needs more impossible. More unconventional. Unreasonable. Unhinged. Keep telling us we're naive, that we should get real, that we don't have a shot. For every barrier, we have a breakthrough. Every obstacle, a leap forward. 
For every cynic, these inspiring grounds have given us an optimist. And we're back. Well, we've been talking about what California was like in the 1850s. We think about California and all the changes that are going on here, but we think about the rest of the United States. Obviously, the 1850s was a very tumultuous decade here in America. Mexico, too, was having its own issues in the 1850s. Could you talk a little bit about the social and political crisis that that country was facing? Well, actually, the, the crisis in Mexico, and the, oh, it was a crisis, and the crisis in the U.S. were very much related. Well, let's talk about Mexico. As a result of the dismemberment of the northern half of Mexico, you had a lot of political reaction, finger-pointing, you know, who was responsible for this. A tremendous blow to national sort of self-identity that was just beginning to emerge. Uh, and you had gradually the... Uh, the rise of two political parties, the conservatives and the liberals, and they were fighting with one another initially politically. However, in 1857, Mexico adopted a new constitution, and that constitution, by the way, was published here in California, so Latinos here were aware of what it said, and in the 1857, the reform constitution, uh, whose adoption led to the three-year war of reform in Mexico, kind of a civil war in Mexico beginning in 1857. The 1857 uh, Constitution reaffirmed Mexico's abolition of slavery. The Constitution said slavery will not be permitted in any part of the Mexican Republic. And further, by the way, uh, let's talk of the U.S., California came in as a free state in part because Californians here just insisted no slavery. And uh, Latinos, almost all Latin American republics had a ball of slavery. Just Latinos didn't want slavery in California. California came in as a free state that upset the balance between the free and the slave states. The southern states were angry and they exacted a number of prices such as the fugitive slave law. Uh, that allowed the owner of a slave to go into free state territory, bring the slave back. Uh, and uh, it that led to a lot of the disequilibrium as the southern states became increasingly fearful of the institution of slavery. So here is Mexico saying, and we confirm the abolition of slavery. And on top of that, uh, Mexico also said, and by the way, reaffirm that there is no racial requirement for being citizens. There is no racial inequality. We are all citizens of the Republic of Mexico. And Latinos here, of course, uh, were obviously being taught about the U.S. Constitution that permitted slavery, that in fact permitted racial discrimination, that seemed to undergird white supremacy, and they were able to very much compare these two systems of governance, Mexico and the United States. And in the issues of slavery and racial equality, the United States Constitution wasn't faring so well. How did France get involved in all this? Well, um, with the uh, election of Abraham Lincoln in 1860, if you remember, the southern states were fearful that he would not vigorously defend slavery. Remember, slavery was not specifically named in the Constitution. Uh, in the Dred Scott decision of 1857, the Supreme Court interpreting the Constitution said, yes, slavery is allowed, and yes, said white supremacy is okay, it's allowed under the Constitution, but the southern states wanted it written in stone. So, fearing that Lincoln would not vigorously defend these institutions, they decided to withdraw from the United States and form a new country with a new constitution that specifically named and defended slavery and white supremacy forever. And, of course, that led to the outbreak of the Civil War. Now, with the outbreak of the Civil War, obviously the Monroe Doctrine is dead letter. Uh, Napoleon III, the emperor in France, was no friend of the 
Union, no friend of the North. He loved the idea of a divided United States. He constantly was flirting with the Confederacy, uh, flirting maybe he would recognize them if this and that the other. But because of the Civil War, France was able to go into Mexico. The emperor wanted to expand his empire, get rid of democracy, put his monarchy in, and start developing some cooperation with the Confederacy. And he would have been just as happy if the Confederates won. And actually, in many ways, tried it as much as he could, short of officially recognize them, to help them along in their struggle to create an independent country built on slavery and racial inequality. So we're thinking about France as far as Mexico. But as we talked a little earlier before we got into this, this one thing we never think about the American Civil War is it really kind of stopped the Monroe Doctrine during four years. And although France certainly had its own, I want to say, adventures in Mexico, they weren't the only European country that got into Latin America during Not at all. Time. Not at all. Spain, for example, again, uh, with the beginning of the Civil War, went into uh, Santo Domingo, basically extinguished the attempts to create a republic in what's now uh, the Rep- Dominican Republic, went on into Ecuador, got in a fight shooting war with Ecuador and with Peru, and then they attacked Chile in the uh, harbor of Valparaíso. So if you're in a Latin American republic, and these republics are new, the idea of self-governance was still kind of new around the world, and only in the Western Hemisphere did you have any sizable number of democracies, and it was looking like... First of all, the North American experiment was coming to a bloody end, and now they're being attacked by France, by Spain, possibly by England. And if you're a a believer in Republican democratic government in Western history, you have to feel maybe this isn't going to last out these wars. So 1850s, all of these things going on in Latin America and in the United States. So now let's kind of a different view of this. You know, people might be watching, although they shouldn't be changing and going to Univicio Telemundo. However... (laughs) Spanish-language media here in California in the 1850s was primarily newspapers, and it's absolutely fascinating to me in this book to read about the power that Spanish-language newspapers had. Could you give us a bit of a background into how the Spanish-language newspapers, I guess, industry developed here in California? Well, prior to the gold rush, uh, there weren't newspapers published in California. Newspapers were printed in Mexico and came up here, but there was no indigenous, if you will, newspaper tradition, although there was a printing press here. However, with the arrival of the gold rush and this huge population explosion, there was a need for communication and also for advertisements, quite frankly. So we see the very first Spanish-language newspaper begun here in Los Angeles, La Estrella de Los Angeles, begun in 1851, followed the next year by the Spanish-language half of uh, a French newspaper. It was called El Eco del Pacifico. And then you had a whole explosion of Spanish-language newspapers, uh, La Cronica in San Francisco in 1854, Clamor Público in Los Angeles. Angeles, 1855, La Gaceta de Santa Barbara, 1854, uh, El Sudamericano in 1856 in San Francisco, a whole explosion. And they uh, had agents in the newspapers. They would list where their agents were that would sell the newspaper, and their agents were all over California. In fact, in my book, I have a map of the agents. Just to give an idea, there's a huge spread of these newspapers, and they were very important. These newspapers didn't carry only the editor's voices. They were really, they were sort of the medium, if you will, for expression. So they contained multiple voices, letters to the editors, self-appointed correspondence, advertisements, public letters uh, to, appealing to public opinion, electoral advertisements. I mean, they really tell you a lot about what's going on in the Spanish-speaking world in California during the gold rush and the Civil War. I mean, I'm assuming it was these newspapers that first let the Spanish-speaking population of California know that the Battle of the Puebla happened. Uh, so now let's bring it back to the title, El Cinco de Mayo. May 5th, 1861, the Battle of the Puebla. What actually happened? Well, we have to understand, uh, first of all, the effects and the impact of the Civil War. 
So, in our last episode, just a few minutes ago, the southern states had just seceded to form a new country with a new constitution, which is almost a word-for-word copy of the United States Constitution, only that it names and protects slavery and white supremacy forever. So, the Confederate guns fire on Fort Sumter, and the Civil War is on. You have, a few months later in July, the very first encounter between the United States troops and the Confederate troops, or the North and the South, and what happens? The Union Army loses. It's a disaster. They're in shambles. They run back to Washington, and people are just shocked. What happened? We thought we were bigger and more powerful than the Confederacy. And from that point on, particularly in the Virginia theater of war, it just seemed like the Union Army was unable to win a battle. And people began to lose a little bit of support. They thought it was going to be over in a couple of days. Uh, And it was started to drag on to uh, months and then to a year. And people were beginning to wonder, wait a minute, uh, this is supposed to be a bloodless affair. Is the Confederacy possibly going to win? And, of course, for Latinos, the Confederacy had expanded. Uh, Arizona was part of the Confederacy. The Confederacy was up to the Colorado River, and they were very explicit. Their next stop was the Port of San Pedro. Now, for Latinos who didn't like the notion of slavery and white supremacy, this is a little bit worrisome. What's going to happen if the Confederacy wins? That's when they hear about the French troops now landing in Mexico, marching towards Mexico City, and they're thinking, oh my God, it's like the Civil War has expanded. I mean, everyone knew that Napoleon was very friendly with the Confederacy. So if there were a French regime in Mexico, they would probably help the Confederacy, certainly at least cooperate, if not actually formally ally themselves. And if they did formally ally themselves, that's all the Confederacy wanted, is just one country to recognize them as an independent country. And basically, they won the war. And it was looking like this was going to happen in early May 1862. But before the French troops could get to Mexico City to depose President Juarez, they had to go through this little town called Puebla. And on May 5th, they were stopped. Now, it took three weeks for word of that to get from Mexico City down to Acapulco, where then the news was put on the steamship that came from Panama, one stop in Acapulco, the next stop two weeks later, San Francisco. Here, the Spanish-language newspapers wrote their stories, printed their papers, spread them all around, and the next day, Latinos here read, Viva Mexico! Viva Zaragoza! But what was really important to understand is it had a different effect here. It was interpreted differently here in California than it was in Mexico. In Mexico, to this day, the Battle of Puebla, oh, well, la-di-da, the Mexican army beat the French army. Well, here, the effect that it had was very different. After a year of hearing of nothing but federal defeat after federal defeat, this was like a ray of hope. Suddenly, for the first time in a major battle, the army of freedom and democracy i.e. the Mexican army, but the army of freedom and democracy finally beat the army of slavery and elitism. And it just had an electrifying effect on Latinos all over the West. We'll be back after a short break. The world needs more impossible. More unconventional. Unreasonable. Unhinged. Keep telling us we're naive. That we should get real. That we don't have a shot. For every barrier, we have a breakthrough. Every obstacle, a leap forward. For every cynic, these inspiring grounds have given us an optimist. Welcome back. What would a Zaragoza sword? Well, 
One of the first things that Latinos did in responding to this first final victory of the Army of Freedom and Democracy, they wanted to honor General Zaragoza, who, by the way, is a Tejano. He's born in Texas. And spontaneously, they decided, we need to honor him. Let's raise money and make him a ceremonial sword. So within a matter of weeks, they raised over $1,500. They built a sword, commissioned it, and it had really uh, a California look. It had a grizzly bear on it. It had uh, <laughs> gold nuggets, very California, but also the Aztec eagle, etc. And they're getting ready to ship it down to General Saragossa. It was on display at uh, Tucker and Company in San Francisco. And just they're getting ready to put it on the steamship. They get word that Saragossa has died of typhus. So they don't know what to do. They uh, pull their groups together. They decide, well, let's send it down to President Juarez. He'll know what to do. So they actually send the sword to Mexico. It's given a military escort up to Mexico City. And the uh, president of the Mexican Senate is just amazed. Wow. All these, and they're called Mexicanos de la Alta California, have honored Zaragoza. We're going to put this sword right next to the sword of Iturbide, who was the one who got Mexico its independence. It was Apia Ah, forget it. They love that sword. <clears throat> uh, and then, of course, we know later on the French do come in to Mexico, and the sword disappears from history. We don't know where it is. So if somebody wants to, it's one of the great mysteries. Nobody really knows who Zaragoza's sword is. Nobody knows. We're looking. We have uh, an all-points bulletin out, but we haven't been able to come up with it just yet. The ultimate in 19th century bling with the, uh, with the mm -hmm. gold nugget. Um, mm -hmm. So... Is now past 1862. Who started to organize Cinco de Mayo co uh, commemorations? Well, what Latinos in the American West realize is, my God, we raised $1,500 without even breathing hard. We didn't even have an organization. What if we did this every month to help Juarez fight off the French? He needs money. He has to buy guns, ammunition, supplies, etc. So they quickly decided to, instead of doing this just once, they're going to do it every single month. And so in every single town where you had a sizable Latino population, they formed uh, it was called an organization called the Junta Patriotica Mexicana. And there were 129 locations in California, Nevada, Oregon, and Arizona that formed a Junta Patriotica Mexicana. Uh, and in each town, the people that joined uh, pledged to give a dollar a month. Now, a dollar was about one day's wage average for the working man. It would be like today, pledging dues of $100 a month. That's pretty heavy. Uh, there were 14,000 members of the Juntas Patrióticas Mexicanas. This was an immense organization. And they could make raise money very, very quickly. And they met every month. And every month, each one of these 129 locations would have a speaker. And the speaker would almost always start off by talking about what happened at the Gates of Puebla on El Cinco de Mayo, the 1862. So it became seared in. And, of course, at this point, the Union Army is really losing McClellan's disastrous peninsula campaign, Second Battle of Bull Run. I mean, it's just looking horrible. Lincoln is replacing general after general after general. But Latinos here, but we know of one general who could beat them, Zaragoza. And he was like the model. And it helped. Uh, they wanted to help Lincoln uh, raise the public opinion because public opinion for the Civil War support is beginning to plummet at this point. But Latinos decided we have to help both Lincoln and Juarez, and that's why they decided to create a new public memory. They very deliberately decided to do this to raise public morale. So beginning a year after the Battle of Puebla here on Los Angeles, you had the very first commemoration a year ago. 
today, blah, 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 blah. But it was very much about the issues of the Civil War, of freedom against slavery, of racial equality against racial inequality, of democracy versus elitist rule. That, and they always used both the United States and the Mexican flag. They would march through the streets of town, they would have the speeches, and this, thus a new public memory was born, El Cinco de Mayo. And that's really, when you think the name of the book, El Cinco de Mayo, an American tradition, I really want to bring home to viewers that although they were obviously celebrating something happened in Mexico, the civil bonds that they were building at this time ended up becoming very important later on during the Civil War for how these Latinos helped serve the Union cause. And we don't really think about it, or if it's not really studied because California is so far west of where the major battles took place in the Civil War, but California had a role in the Civil War, as did its Latino population. Could you talk a little bit about how that civil society that was developed through the Juntas Petirocas Mexicanas and El Cinco de Mayo uh, celebrations was able then to come together and help the Union during the war? Well, California was on the opposite coast, and only about 500 Californians actually saw action in the Eastern Theater of War. However, there were about 16,000 people from California involved directly militarily in the Civil War for a number of reasons. To begin with, the Civil War cost about $4 million a day. Now, that's an $1860. That'd be, who knows what it would be today. Uh, but that was very, very costly. And most of that was being financed by gold from California and silver from Nevada. We, were, we financed the Civil War. If it weren't for that, uh, I don't think the Civil War would have lasted more than a few months. However, the Confederates also knew that California is financing the Civil War. There were some strong Confederate tendencies in California, uh, so that the 16,000 members in uniform, and this includes Latinos who are in the Army, in the Cavalry, you had whole detachments of Spanish-speaking native California Cavalry. They basically had to play a blocking role to keep the Confederates from either making incursions into California or Nevada, Oregon, or as the French went into Mexico, remember the French and the Confederates were very, very friendly to force all a possible French thrust up into the West. So they played a defensive role to keep California and the West and all their treasures on the side of the Union. So, as we both know, the American Civil War turned out well. The Union won. And uh, the Mexican Civil War, the French were driven out, or the, the, the Battle of the French were driven out. So now we have uh, a celebration for battles that are done. When did it start to change from being a celebration of the stuff that Zaragoza did and the the Mexican army defeating the French and very much a particular commemoration of a military victory into what we kind of know about it today because frankly most people in the Anglophone world think of Cinco de Mayo it's like okay well they're putting up the Corona beer ads and we're going to start having a party it definitely moved from a commemoration to more kind of want to say a secular festival how did that happen? Well even in the Hispanophone world it's advertised as Drinco de Mayo still says let's have a party dude let's go get drunk so let's look at the history after the Civil War and the French intervention. Now, what happened for about 15, 20 years afterwards, the veterans of both the Union Army, the Spanish-speaking veterans of both the Union Army and the Mexican Army, because a lot of Latinos also went south and joined the Mexican Army. Uh, Mariano Vallejo, for example, from Sonoma had one son in each front. Platon Vallejo was a surgeon with the Union forces. He was president of the Second Battle of Bull Run. Uladislao, his other son, was a captain in the Mexican Army. He's one of President Juarez's personal bodyguard. He was happy. His sons were defending freedom and democracy all over the North American continent. So these veterans every year would put on their either Mexican or Union Army uniforms here in Los Angeles. They'd parade through the streets of town. Then they would give their speeches. 
We don't know exactly what they said, but probably they were telling, this is why we fought. Now, their children, who had been born during the uh, gold rush in the Civil War, who were growing up bilingual and bicultural, and actually had experienced this, although they were young at the time. So as their parents began to die off, their bilingual bicultural children in the 1870s, the 1880s, began to pick up this uh, celebration. Now, these children of the veterans began to have their children of third generation, but their children, the grandchildren of the veterans, really had no personal knowledge or acquaintance, so they actually had to begin to teach them, my children, this is why we celebrate Cinco de Mayo. And just as those children were becoming adults, the Mexican Revolution explodes. You had this huge wave of refugees fleeing all of that. About a half million folks went to Texas. About a half million came to California. They got here, and they noticed that the local Spanish-speaking population did something every Cinco de Mayo. And it pulled the community together, and they could raise funds, do all kinds of things. And just as they noticed that, that generation began to die off. So these incoming refugees continued this custom of doing something on Cinco de Mayo, but they didn't have the history. We didn't have Chicano Studies Departments. You didn't have a press doing this. So they had to kind of create their own reasons. Why do we celebrate? In essence, it became very Mexico-centric. They focused only on the military aspects of the Battle of Pueblo. The Mexican Army beat the French Army. Uh, they used music from Mexico at the time, dances from Mexico. They just lost all the historical accounts that Latinos here had been using, tying them to the gold rush, civil war, and on to the mission period. So they kind of recreated the reasons and the celebration. So that, that's when we lost that historic linkage. And every generation since then has recut and refit Cinco de Mayo to what's going on to, uh, with it. And now we get to this day, it's now celebrated all over the United States, but nobody knows why. We've lost the memory. Professor David Hayes Batista, the author of El Cinco de Mayo, an American tradition. Thanks so much for being on Subtext today. My pleasure. And thanks for watching this episode. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.